Hello girls, I just wanted to pop in real quick and let you know that this episode is going to be discussing a sensitive topic and we are going to be talking about things that are violent and are might be difficult for younger children to hear. So if you're traveling in the car with your kiddos or you're at home, you might want to put your earphones on. Otherwise, have a listen first before you expose your younger audience. Thanks. Girl clothing is so much more than clothing. We are a movement. We have collectively decided to stop seeing each other as competition and instead seeing each other as sisters because we believe that is why we are held back as a gender and we are tired of it. So we are coming together, sharing our stories, our experience, strength, and hope to know that we are not alone and to hear that there is a light at the end of the tunnel and we are moving forward. It is 100% girl power. We know that if the women energy is not lifted up across this planet, we are doomed as a human race and we are here to change the game. So please help me welcome back our host, Taverly. You are listening to Girl Talk and I am super stoked to be welcoming all these amazing women on the show. Because in the girl community, we are empowering and supporting each other and we're also sharing our stories. Because we know that the more that we can learn from other women, especially women that are going someplace that we wanna be. Meaning, it's really hard to do something or to overcome something if you can't see that it's possible. And so all of these amazing women in the girl community, along with Courtney Olson, we're sharing stories of bravery and courage because we know that we're setting the stage for other women to be able to do the same. So on this episode, I'm excited to have Adele George. Thanks for joining me. You're welcome. I'm so happy to be here. I feel like I might have just slurred my words a little, and I promise you guys it's not because I have been drinking. (laughs) It's because I've been doing a (laughs) lot of talking. (laughs) So when you talk too much, if you hear me kind of get a little slurry, it's just that's what happens when you have, I don't know, how many, Gigi, how many hours of talking have I been doing now? See, she holds, I don't even want to look at that number. (laughs) But I'll say I saved the best for last. Yay! Yay! So Adele, this is your third year at Girl Live? Yes, it is. It is. I'm so excited to be here. Every year's been just so impactful and I just... Um, I just can't miss it. I just didn't want to miss it again. Yeah, like so I, you've learned a lot the first couple of years. Oh, my God. It's been, I mean, so many stories of how life-changing it is. Yes, and it's so, like, even from the first year, then coming back for the second year, and I was reflecting back on how much my life had grown and changed, mm. and then the same thing from last year to this year, and, of course, like, a combination of both years up to this year. And it's just amazing how... Um. I have a better perspective of myself Um, and it's just, I don't know, the growth has been remarkable. Yeah. It's been remarkable. I have the best time ever. Yeah. And I think that you're, one thing that you're doing very well is is recognizing that your personal growth Mm -hmm. is a story worth telling. Absolutely. And that it's constantly evolving. Yes. Yes. Because yes. isn't that isn't that the beauty? It doesn't. We don't stop evolving ever. No, we don't. And uh, and that's why I love telling my story. I love telling it to people, and I love communicating it to people because I want people to know what what can blossom out of what's happened, especially you know in a situation like mine. Yeah. And you're a survivor of domestic abuse. Yes, I am. 
And so um, start us at the beginning of that relationship, or I guess maybe the first abusive relationship you've had, because it can sometimes be cyclical, right? It can. Um, I think for me, I grew up in an environment where I didn't really know what domestic violence was. Mm. It wasn't talked about. It wasn't something I was aware of. So when I got into the relationship with my ex-husband, it I didn't recognize the signs. And again, this was back in the early 90s when we started dating. So domestic violence wasn't even something that was really talked about. It was still swept under the rug, or at least in my community. So where where are you from, Adele? I'm originally from Thibodeau, Louisiana, but I live in New Orleans. Okay. <laughs> so in a small community, it wasn't something I don't that wasn't really talked about a lot. But um so I didn't recognize the gaslighting. I didn't recognize Explain okay, explain what gaslighting ex- is because I hear that term a lot and I I think I know what it means, but I know a lot of people don't really know what that because that's a newer term. It is. Yeah. It is. So what does gaslighting mean? Gaslighting essentially means that, I use this example when I say it, it's if you and I go stand outside and you're like, oh my God, the sky is so beautifully blue. And I turn around and I look at you and I say, no, the sky is green. And I proceed to convince you that the sky is green to the point that you believe it. And so when it comes to personal relationships, an abuser is going to really make you think that they are the person for you. They are there to take care of you, that nobody's going to treat, nobody's going to treat you better than they will. Did I say that right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Like in, in that, um, your, your family and your friends, they aren't as good as he is. And, and so you, all of a sudden you really start believing these ideas that aren't really true, but you, you get, it gets repeated to you so much and so frequently that you would start believing that he's my everything. Mm. He's going to be the man who loves me and takes care of me. So does that does sorry I'm just going to ask another no, question fine. about that term but does does that also apply to the reverse side meaning would you use the the term gaslighting to describe how a man could make you feel about your own beliefs so convincing you that your opinion about something is so wrong and all the reasons why are actually not correct right but because the argument is so strong that you feel like wow I had that totally wrong. Yes. That's the way that I envision gaslighting is convincing you that what you think is just totally baloney, even though it's kind of just the, the, it's the reality, but you've been able to, it's almost like a brainwashing about an incorrect idea. Exactly. And that's kind of the start of a lot of abusive relationships because at that point, that's when the isolation happens because they, they don't want you to be told any different. You know, they don't want about them, about them. Exactly. Or to find out that your parents really do love you and that you're important, just as important to them as to with anyone else. So it's really kind of, it, it has a dichotomy and it has a, um, an ebb and flow to it. But once they get you in, it's, it's the beginning of the process of isolation. So, so it's really fascinating. And, and so in your case, once they started the process of, once he started the process of isolating you, mm-hmm. 
was it physical? We, for me, it was mostly, um, yes, it was. But it started out as very mentally abusive, emotionally abusive, and then it became sexually abusive for me. Um, He did not physically beat me, at least not initially. It was um, more sexual abuse. It was, you know, demanding that I have sex with him when he wants, you know, and in dressing the way he wants, behaving the way he wants. I'm not doing enough. I'm doing, you know, I am, um, if I meet a friend of his, you know, he would, he would get jealous or he would, um, be forceful and it's eventually became spousal rape Mm -hmm. because he would get so forceful with me that at that point it was no longer, you know, just me being obligated to have sex. It was just, it was rape. And that's a hard topic to talk about, especially mm-hmm. within a marriage. Yes. It's very challenging. So did you, did you lean upon anybody in your life when, during this time when this was happening or were you, did you keep it to yourself? I, it, I kept it to myself initially because I I thought this is what a marriage was supposed to be like. I thought, you know, and it, so it took me a little while to kind of realize that, well, my friend's marriages aren't like this. Nobody else is having these sexual issues. And then I started to put the pieces of the puzzle together and I confided in my best friend. And I was like, this is not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that was really kind of a, okay. And, it, and, and at that point, I knew that... Um, I was going to have to find a, f- a way to get out, mm. figure out how to get out. How long had you been together then? We met in 1991, married in 94, and everything ended in 1996. It blew up in 96. Mm. So it was a very short period of time. But an intense mm-hmm. period of time. Very intense. So after you told your friend, was that sort of the beginning of like letting the cat out of the bag? Is that kind of how that process went? Because I know that sometimes that happens, right? As soon as you say it, you can't take it back. Right. You can't go back to your friend and say, oh, I decided to stay. Even though all this terrible stuff had happened, it's like once you started, it's like a snowball. Yeah, it is. And so what happened was at that point, you, I, something in me shifted to where I was like, I don't know how I'm going to get out of this, but I know I can't stay in it. Mm. And at that point, it was apparent that divorce was what I had to do. So um, I slowly started to distance myself, like just kind of shut down and kind of went on autopilot, which is what a lot of women do. Um, They shut themselves off in order to endure what happens. Mm -hmm. And um, it's protection. Yeah, yeah. it's self-protection, it's self-preservation. And at some point, in other conversations that I've had with other women, it's a numbing, you know, it's a way that they've become so numb to it. For me, it was self-preservation and it made me become more hyper aware. And it made me realize that this was in fact a very dangerous situation Mm -hmm. because one of the things I haven't mentioned yet was that my ex-husband was a cop. So we had tons of weapons in the house. So it wasn't a safe situation. 
for me. And um, we split up, and that wasn't pretty. But he left, and he went to his, because it was my family's property that we were living on. So he left and went to his mom's house. And um, some things continued. The rape did continue um, on occasions when he would catch me there. Um, because what were you to do? I mean, what what options did you? I, I'm I'm I guess I'm asking even myself this question because my first question is why didn't you call the police? Oh wait, I can't. He is the police. Yes. Was there was there? And I I'm gonna I'm just gonna be shocked for just a moment because as I start to process how. Mm-hmm precarious of a situation you were in what would have happened if you went to his superiors and i'm not saying that that's an easy option or even a possible option but right what 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 could have potentially happened well like would they have listened to you no yeah. well yes and no what i've i've um i guess it's not uncommon in that profession mm-hmm. that there's domestic violence there was someone else who they had issues with, with, I think he was working for a different department or, you know, police department or something like that. And I remember how they handled that situation. And they used to just tell him, bro, why you're doing this? Stop this. Don't do this. This is not right. They didn't really do anything about it. And again, remember, this is back in the 90s when... They didn't really get involved. They didn't have yeah. the same. It's not up. the same as it is now. Things no. are totally different now. Exactly. Especially if you're, you know, in working against a perceived man's career. Yes. Um, you would have met resistance just for that point alone. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. So I didn't, I just didn't, you know, and I had some that asked me why I just didn't tell him anything. And I'm like, because nothing would have been done. You know, nothing would have been done about it. So it really is was a precarious situation mm-hmm. to be in. Um, and he was not mentally well. He um, suffered years of sexual abuse. He did. And you knew When he this. was a child, yes. So um, I think because he didn't get the proper help that he needed, he was breaking down. You know, when as so as the marriage was falling apart, his his mental stability deteriorated, deteriorated because you were changing the status quo and um, because he was losing something that was special to him. Yes. Yes. And so Anne was a piece of property that he had ownership over. So um, we so I ended up staying with my dad for just to kind of not be where he could find me or at least not be alone. And did your dad know of the situation? (laughs) Not really. He knew that we were getting a divorce and he knew that it wasn't good, but he didn't really know. I I didn't sit down and talk to him about it. And I, because how difficult would it have been to tell your dad this? Well, exactly. I think I was still processing what had happened for me. It was, all I want, I knew that if I could get him out, then I could, you know, like any domestic violence, someone who's in domestic violence in an active domestic violence situation, the only thing they can think of is if I can get him away, then I can be okay. So really, I wasn't processing what was going on or what happened to me because... Not at the time. Well, it was still live. It was still happening. 
Yes. That's why. Yes. And so, um, with the divorce papers were ready for him to sign and he, um, woke up one morning and he did not have a good day. He woke up, he pulled a woman over that morning, brought her in the back of a cane field and raped her, brought her back to her car and then followed her, then told her to go home. And of course at this, by the time she gets home, she calls the cops. So every police officer in the area is looking for him. So I was working at a bank at the time as a teller and he came to the bank and walked in and um, pulled his gun out and told everybody but the people who worked there to get out. And it, and it turned into a 27-hour hostage situation with one woman getting murdered. So, and that's the short story. <laughs> but um, he came in and he was, he, he was completely like, it had mentally broken at that point. You know, he was in a, I mean, obviously he was in a bad place, but I'm trying to figure out how to describe, like, he walked in, and I, it's that trying to regain control of what he was losing, I think. I don't really know. So what happened? Did he get arrested on the spot after 20, how many hours? 27. First of all, I'm really glad that you're here. Yes, and me too. Okay. Me too. I mean, I'm really, really glad to meet you and have you here. Yes. Um, and thank you for feeling comfortable enough to share this. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm more than happy to share it. Um, it ended like a movie. We, you know, we crafted a plan for an exit. You and him? Well, well me, Was it just you and him in there? No. By the end of it, there was another girl that was left in there with us. So it was me, him, and another girl. And, um, you know, we're negotiating everything with the police to get us out. And at this point, he's, you know, he's fatigued. Or, I mean, we're all exhausted. But at this point, he had, you know, caved. And it was still hours to try to get this all coordinated. So... Well, we go out the back door in a very coordinated and very well-instructed sort of um, way. And what happened is they had him come out and they had him back away from us and keep stepping back. Like he was facing us, so he kept stepping backwards. And eventually this SWAT team just came out of nowhere. Mm. It was, like I said, it was like a movie. SWAT team came out of nowhere. He spread eagle on the ground. They're clearing the building to make sure that nobody else is in there and to make sure that there's, you know, we, we, you know, we told him that he had murdered one woman. So they wanted to make sure there were no obvious other dead bodies or anything like that. So they cleared the building and then hauled off her and I to the hospital in an ambulance. So it, but it was, like, even thinking about it today, it plays out in my mind like a movie. And it's very surreal. Um, because, I mean, he was laying on the ground, just spread eagle, and had so many SWAT team members standing around him with their guns on him. 
Yeah, you're describing a visual that's very difficult to imagine. Yeah, yeah, it's... I I won't forget that because it was at that moment that I had the biggest sense of relief. Mm. It was over. It was over. It you was free. completely over. Unfortunately for everyone else that had started in, that was involved in that day, it was just the nightmares were just starting. But for me, it was over. And I was free because he was never going to get out of prison and he's still in prison. So he was on death row. And then in 2014, he, um, because you have the whole appeal process that goes on when you're on death row, at some point there was um, an agreement made and he is now life in prison. So, I mean, he's, it's the same. He's not getting out. He's not getting out and he's not going anywhere. And he wasn't before and he's not now. So that's the only difference mm-hmm. is his sentence, you know, is that he's not going to get executed. But I don't think Louisiana has frequently executed people anyway. So and how do you feel about that? Um, that's very interesting that you asked that question. I've always kind of been the punishment fits the crime type person. So one night, and this was after he was sentenced to death, I was watching an episode on CNN where they were following a guy who was going to get executed and they were following the family. And at the end of it, when he was executed, it was a father whose daughter was he, this guy murdered and he admitted to the murder. So it wasn't like it was a There was no controversy of guilt. No, there was no controversy of guilt. But, of course, the cameras couldn't go in for the execution. So as soon as it was over, the father walked out, and he came up to the person that was doing the interview in the camera, and he said, I don't feel any better. Mm. And that was like, I get that. Mm -hmm. I get that. And that's when I was just like, it's not, I, I didn't look at it as, as vengeance that he needed to die Mm -hmm. for what he did. I I just didn't, I, that's not, I don't, me personally, Mm -hmm. that's not my personality. But when, when he said that, I mean, I literally sat back on the couch and I was like, yep, Mm -hmm. it's not going to solve anything. Mm -hmm. So, so were you able to give up, I guess, an emotion to having tie, having an emotion tied to whether or not, he's he's put to death yeah it doesn't matter at that point it didn't didn't matter matter. and at that point when people would have the conversations about like if he's put to death and I would go and I was just like this is over for me I don't need to stand there Mm -hmm. and watch him get put to death that's morbid so what year was that that the the incident occurred in the bank 1996 okay and so I mean, how did you do that? I mean, how did you, how did you get through that? I think the same way I had gotten through every other situation. I knew who he was. You know, I knew, I knew who his behaviors, his mannerisms by this point, I knew who he was. So for me, it was just like, going through the motions and letting him do his thing and 
you know, at some point, and, and I say it this way, I think at some point I just resigned to myself to the fact that I didn't know whether or not I was going to get out alive. It wasn't a resigning myself to the fact that I was going to die, but it was like, okay, I have to deal with the, I have to deal with this circumstance that in this situation that I'm in (laughs) Mm -hmm. and we're on the phone with the cops and everybody's trying to negotiate and I'm the one who's telling the cops, leave him alone right now. (laughs) You're agitating him like stop. And then knowing how to let him calm down and stop. So there was this sort of, I don't want to, so for me, it was not managing him. I don't know how to. It kind of was. You were handling him. Yeah. And that's okay. That's okay to say that because you were, you were handling him for the sake of other people's benefit because you knew how to put him in a path Mm -hmm. to make a better choice. Yeah. Yeah. Or at least let him calm down because the more he would escalate, the more our lives were at risk. Yeah. So, um, and at one, and at one, at some point, I think I had hit, and and when I say that I moved past the point of, of letting go of whether I was going to live or die, some, it wasn't a fear or anything like that. It's just like, I can't focus on whether or not he's going to kill me. I have to focus on the situation. But then at some point you do get survivor's instinct. And you do get a little bit brave in in interaction. And being also that this was my ex-husband and it wasn't a stranger to me. And so at one point he had stuck the gun in his mouth. And I looked at him and I said, I'm not going to stand there and watch you do this. And I turned around and walked away. Had I stayed there, I'm guessing he probably would have done it. But because I wasn't going to stand there and be a part of that spectacle. Mm -hmm. And again, you have to remember there's fatigue in all this too, but Mm -hmm. because I wasn't going to stand there and be a part of that spectacle, Mm -hmm. I walked away from it. I mean, I wasn't going to stand there and watch this man blow his head off. So when you got to the hospital with the other woman, um, how did you like find a breath? You know, like I, I'm, I'm putting myself in your shoes and I can't, but how did you find a breath to, I talk about it. I know that I know the reporting process of something like that is so significant. Mm -hmm. You have to, you you have to fill out tons of paperwork. You have to make sure you're okay. And you have to deal with the fact of the, the whole town knows what happens. You are now the person, right. That has been in the center of this massive incident. Yes. And how did you, that made national news by the way. Right. (laughs) Um, I got to the hospital and my parents were there and when I, um, and when I was in the room, they couldn't perform a rape kit on me. He raped us all in the bank, by the way. Um, that's how I, re- I remember things in bits and pieces. Mm. Sorry about that. That's but okay. they couldn't do a rape kit on me because I was on my period. And so. What about the other woman? I'm, I'm assuming they did one. It's mm. obviously very mm-hmm. private. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know. I'm not very informed as to what they went through personally with the doctor and stuff like that. But, um, the doctor came in, there was a social worker there and 
I was, the, the doctor just kind of, you know, checked me out, listened to my heartbeat, talking to my mom, I'm talking to my dad, making sure that I kind of wasn't out of my, mm-hmm. my head. And then checking your level of shock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And again, remember, I, at this point, have felt an immense sense of relief. Yeah. So he prescribed me some, I think some Valium, because he had told my dad I probably wouldn't sleep that night (laughs) and so which I never took by the way um but he prescribed that and then I left there and had to go to the police station and I spent four hours at the police station giving a statement and that was when it went talking it through and and doing all of that which I'm glad that they make you do it right then and there because you don't want to forget anything, yeah, of course. It, it, it's, it's, it's hard, but it is the right time. Yes, and it, but that was four hours. Mm-hmm. It was, so it didn't end until that was done and I was able to go home. And when I went home, I was just like, I just want to shower. I want some food. And I want to sit down. <laughs> like, I just want to sit down. And it wasn't even so much that I just wanted to process it as much as I just wanted to go, whoo, <laughs> what just happened? Yeah, like WTF. Yes, yeah. exactly. So, um, but I wasn't, because it was over, um, I wasn't free of nightmares. I, I was diagnosed with PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had an amazing therapist. I spent five years in therapy. And I was in therapy the whole time we were going through the court systems and, and I didn't stop until we were completely done. Yeah. You knew you needed the help. Yeah. Yeah. And it made, I can, I will say that one of the absolute reasons that I'm where I'm at today as a human being and as a healed person is because I spent so much time in therapy and I committed to it and gave myself the ability to um, work through what had happened and, and understand and it, it. And it is work. I mean, yes. what I really can appreciate the fact that you said you committed yourself to it. Yes. Because there's a big difference between going to therapy and committing yourself to therapy because you're acknowledging that it's a lot of work. It's none of what you just described, the after effect, the mm-hmm. work you did. Mm-hmm. None of that's easy. No, it's not. I was fortunate enough to have a therapist who could explain this stuff to me in a way where she's like, okay, that was a panic attack. That was a panic attack that you had. And in this panic attack, this is what was going on with your body. And this Mm. is why. And so don't fight it. Let it happen. When you come out of it, you're going to be really tired and you're probably not going to feel really good, but give yourself a day or two or three or however long. But after that's done, you're going to feel better. And so once I learned my body and how my body was responding, I could actually start to feel when I was, um, I was so aware of when I was about to have a panic attack or if I was in a situation where I would get scared. And so I started to, and this is not initially, this is like three, four years. This is towards the end of therapy. 
that I really could could actually tap into and start to realize, oh, that's a panic attack. And then I could check myself mentally from head to toe and go, do I have a reason to feel panicked? Is there something wrong? And, and I could, like, I don't want to say talk myself down. But you could deploy tactics to help manage it. Yes, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And, and now it's very rare. It's very rare that I have any issues with it. And I think it's just simply because I learned it and I was taught about it and I was taught to understand what was happening with my body. Right. And it was so, it was an amazing, it's been an amazing experience to let yourself experience a panic attack and come out on the other side. And when you've rested and eaten Mm -hmm. and, you know, done some self care after to feel better. So this was how many years ago? Well, it happened in 1996. So we're doing some math. I know. So. <laughs> we're in 2019. So yeah. So it's been a little while. It's been 22, 23 years. Yeah. So first of all, I, I'm going to say this again. Thank you. you know, You're welcome. I, it's, I, don't th- I don't think thank you is the right word. <laughs> I think maybe bless you. <laughs> I don't know, but that sounds like you sneezed and you didn't sneeze. <laughs> um but, you know, thanks and blessings to you because mm-hmm. um, this is important stuff to talk about. I didn't know that we were going to talk about all that today. I didn't know that that was going to be mm-hmm. what you were going to share. So, I mean, I'm clearly very impacted by mm-hmm. what you've shared. And um, I think that it would be useful to talk to the women out there who are still living in an abusive situation. Yes. Um, because it's very difficult to relate to that situation if you haven't been in it. I almost can't relate. I don't, I wouldn't have the right words to give someone, mm-hmm. but you do. Yes. So what, what would you say to someone who is living in an abusive situation at this time? To become aware of what is going on, to get out of the numbing mode and get into planning. Um, it's not easy to leave a situation that's in domestic, that you're in domestic violence, a domestic violence situation. And there's resources out there, you know, the National Domestic Violence um, Hotline. I think that's what it's called. Mm -hmm. I'll put a link. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk and we'll, we can put a link because there is a national number. Yeah. I know that you can call that. I think that filters down into any state. Well, the national number or have the resources for the places that you can call locally. So, um, and, and help you plan, but you have to plan to leave in most situations. Um, even if it's something as simple as packing a duffel bag with some cash and a burner phone, Mm -hmm. you know, not, or walking out the door and never looking back. It's very difficult to do, Mm -hmm. you know, and you, the first step though, is to get out of the that numbing mode. the numbing mode get out of that and become self-aware and hyper aware that you need to save yourself and you need if you have children and involved in the situation that you need to save them too and unfortunately they don't always have support so or if they do they get too involved in the situation they don't know how to not stay out of the situation not to confront him that mm-hmm. type of thing 
So it's really good to speak to someone, a professional, a professional that understands these situations. Yes. And we've come a long way legally. (laughs) So get the cops involved some way, shape or form. Um, Even just to get a paper trail. Yes. Because if something happens and, and, and in my situation in particular, if something would have happened to me, no one would have known that I was dealing with an abusive situation had he just decided to come home one day. Oh, I see. Because you, because you had, you had not reported it. So there was right. Right. So even if it's, you know, going to the police department and talking to somebody, you know, just having that paper trail, making sure someone's aware the laws are a little bit different today than they were in, in, in state by state, of course, but we're making progress. Mm-hmm. Um, so it gives you a chance to get out. And, you know, I also want to say that um, there are people out there that know of neighbors or friends or family that are in a situation where you know that something is going awry. And mm-hmm. oftentimes you don't really know details, but you know that something's not right. Yes. And I've had a conversation, you know, in on on my other podcast, Grit and Grace, and with lots of individuals, because there's a situation that has happened recently that's close to home for me. Mm-hmm. And I asked the question, like, what do you do as an outsider? And I mean, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Um, find the resources for them. Yeah, Hand exactly. them the. Yeah. They have to do the work. Right. But if you say if you need to leave, you call me and I will take you. Mm-hmm. You need to hide a bag of clothes for you and your children, money, a burner phone. I will hide it in my house. Call me and I'll throw it out the front door. You know, find a way to support them. You call a hotline. Call the hotline and ask them what their options are, what their resources right. are. Um, you can maybe go to the police department and talk to someone at the police department for advice mm-hmm. and say... I have a neighbor, I know that she's getting abused, and I'm not here to file charges or report it, obviously. Just ask for que- ask questions, yeah. Yeah, you know, I mean, and I'm not asking you to go over there because that could possibly... Escalate. Escalate. Yeah, right. But they can give you advice, too, on because they'll know, there's a possibility that they would know of shelters that she could go to right. immediately. So having that kind of information... And giving it to them, even if they get pissed off, even if they get offended, but just saying, you know, look, you can stash some stuff here when you need to get away. Um, I'm, I'm here for you if you need some support. Uh, it is a risk because you obviously at that point could put your own safety. Yeah. But I often tell people, don't look the other way yeah don't and that's why i'm bringing this up because i think that it's it's easy to say i don't want to get involved i mean that that could reflect back on me number one number two i could lose the friendship right um but in both cases it's worth it it is and and so many people look in the other direction because they don't want to get involved they want to pretend like it doesn't happen yeah so I hate that. Yeah. Adele, I am I am inspired by you. I am in awe of your courage and your bravery. And thank you 
so very much for coming on the show and, and sharing this and, and helping others because I know that you are you are now lending your voice forward to other people. Absolutely, absolutely. And look, I've gotten calls at two o'clock in the morning from all over the country going, my sister is in a situation, what do we do? And I get on the phone and I call the national hotline, I get the phone numbers, I get the information and I pass it on. It in in just sometimes just making those calls for somebody who's not frantic. Yeah, right. It's helpful. It's helpful. We'll put your social media links um, in the show notes so people yes. can can reach out to the links that you've provided that you're comfortable sharing with the public. Absolutely. And then you know people can get in touch with you if if they want. And we'll also put the link into the national domestic hotline. Yes, please. And those of you that are listening, isn't this what it's all about? Right. This is this is us finding and connecting with amazing women like Adele who are sharing their stories for the the women that are in the position that she may have been in or even just all of the women that are part of their girl community just Mm -hmm. to support each other and also just to kind of hug you and just tell you that we're grateful for you because you have taken something that's been super horrific and you are now um, helping others yes So if you're listening to us on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts or maybe even on Ladies Chit Chat Club or Himalaya, leave us a rating and a comment. And we promise that we will continue to bring amazing women like Adele to you. And I would like you guys to maybe listen to this episode and share it with somebody that you know needs to hear it. Because that's the other thing we can do, Adele, is we can make sure this this content can get in front of other people as well and and maybe this is a good way for if you're worried about someone in their situation share share just share girl talk as a whole and you know tell them go listen to episode number such and such just by chance and absolutely and and it, it may just make a difference it may and let's hope it does we will be back soon thanks adele you're welcome This is Courtney Olson thanking you for joining us. If you want to keep up with us and join us some more, find us on our website at girl.com. That is G-R-R-R-L-G-R-R-R-L.com. You can find our newsletter on there to sign up for that and stay in the now. Or find us on our Instagram at girl underscore clothing. That's girl underscore clothing. And remember, you are enough.